0: right i'm asking uh asking bill parker to come come and pray for me um again people go who is this person okay first of all bill's one of our best buddies um he's also a doctor and he's also one of our elders and so he comes to pray because especially like days like today we're we're in some tread lightly or tread tread lightly but boldly if that makes sense scripture so just to pray for the holy spirit to work as we as we study scripture sir God, we lift up Paul before he preaches today as usual, but ask a special blessing on him today in preaching from a very difficult scripture, God. Um, All scripture is God-breathed, and we believe that, Lord, and know that you've given us this man today to explain it to us. So, pray that his words would be your words, that you give him conviction to do it rightly, dividing the word of truth as you would have him do. Give him courage. um, Give him... uh, what he needs today to do this message and do it well. Bless him, bless his family, bless his music, bless his ministries, God. We love him and thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Um, while, while, we're, while we're announcing things, we, we have a, a marathon winner over here, um, Nicole Arnott. She won her she won the marathon. No, no, it, in my book, you won. So that's where we're just gonna leave it at that. Um, the, Pat, Pat Joyner, are you here this morning? Pat's probably sleeping his dancing feet off. Pat, but so Pat did dancing for the stars. But this morning we actually have the dancing for the star champion and the runner-up at church this morning. So Mr. Phil Payne and Mr. Randy Sane, Payne and Sane. I think they need to become a hip hop duo group. Um, insane and the pain or something like that. So anyway, but they're both here. Give them a big hand. They won last night. And then on a more on a more on a more serious note, uh, I want us as a congregation to uh, pray for a friend of mine. Her name is Miss Erin Uh She has got um, uh, cancer and just not good news these days. But um, you know what, Danielle and I like couldn't even make it through her blog. You know, it's just it's so laden with faith and uh, and just truth. Um, so if you know Erin Sipe, go read her stuff. But we're going to pray for her as a congregation. Jesus, we lift up Erin to you, God, and we pray for her, we pray for her family, and we pray for healing. We unashamedly come to you and ask that you would heal her completely. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful of the witness that she is for you in the middle of this, and God, that you would take away pain, that you would take away anguish, that you would take away cancer. Lord God, we ask this in your name, and we also just confess that we know that you cause all things to work together for your good and your glory for those that are called according to your purpose. And so Lord, we also just pray that you would be glorified in this, because we know that's what Aaron would want. So we lift her up to you, and it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And I know that we read 13 and 14, and we ended on that last week, but we're going to pick that up, because it's the, it's, the, it's the hinge through which we get to the rest of the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount as well. So we're going to read that again. I'll briefly touch on it, because we taught on it last week. Matthew 7, starting with verse 13. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the the many who choose the easy way. But the gateway to life is small and the road is narrow and only a few find it. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really wolves that will tear you apart. You can detect them by the way that they act just as you can identify a tree by its fruit. You don't pick grapes from a thorn bush or figs from thistles. A healthy tree produces good fruit and an unhealthy tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, the way to identify a tree or a person is by the kind of fruit that is produced. Not all people, Not all people who sound religious are really godly. They may refer to me as Lord, but they still won't enter the kingdom of heaven. The decisive issue is whether they obey my Father in heaven. On judgment day, many will tell me, "'Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, "'we cast out demons in your name, and Perform many miracles in your name. "'But I'll reply, I never knew you. "'Go away, the things you did were unauthorized. "'Anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me "'is wise like a person who builds a house on solid rock. "'Though the rain comes and the torrents "'and the floodwaters rise, "'the winds beat against the house, "'it won't collapse because it is built on rock. "'But anyone who hears my teaching and ignores it is foolish like a person who builds a house on the sand.'" When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against the house, it will fall with a mighty crash. After Jesus finished speaking, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one who had real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. We moved to seminary we moved to Richmond, Virginia from Boone, North Carolina in nineteen ninety six. Uh, we were a long way away in Boone from Richmond. That is a long, long drive. And so we really didn't know what we were getting into. We didn't have a lot of time. Richmond's a big city. I think at that time it was like 880,000 people. Now it's up over a million. Um, so we didn't have time. We couldn't go. We just knew where the seminary was, and we knew like, there's a few places that don't live there, don't live there, don't live there. And the seminary had kind of a concierge guy, and he was supposed to like, help you find where to live and stuff. Now I know that he was a moron, But we had kind of narrowed it down to, and really it was simply like, what place does not require a $1,500 deposit, which we didn't have? We had like eight nickels at that time. But anyway, and so we kind of came to him and we we're like, hey, listen, we, we've got to, we've, we're down here this weekend. We're gonna, we need to sign a lease. I've got to buy some textbooks. I've got to sign up for classes, all these kind of things. We, we, we can't do it. It's a five-hour drive. My wife has a job. I was a area director for Young Life. We just can't take a ton of time off until we're ready to go. Where should we live? And we are narrowed it down to two places. One place was called Marblehead and one place was called London Town. And so we kind of were leaning towards Marblehead. It looked really nice. Look looked really nice. London Town, we were kind of like, eh, if we could deal with it. It was maybe a little bit closer to seminary. So we were kind of like, uh. so we, we said, what should we do? And he said, listen, stay away from Marblehead. That place is terrible. There's drug deals going down there. It's awful. I wouldn't send anyone there. What a complete idiot. Marblehead was the nice one. We did not realize that the police called London Town, which is where we moved, where we signed the lease, where we made the deposit, they called it Lock and Load Town. I'm not making this up. So we moved to Lock and Load Town. While we were there, our building was set on fire. While, while we were there, you'd roll up on a random, like we'd be coming home from church on Sunday afternoon and everyone's out on their front step drinking. Well, the, the point is that false leadership, false teaching, false prophecy, False counsel, it's not benign. It is dangerous, and there are consequences from it. And so Jesus is coming, and he's drawing you to a very specific point here, and he said, listen, we can't wrap up the end of the Sermon on the Mount with just some nice, hey, this is all about grace, and I love you, and do what you want to do. I'm Jesus, you know. It doesn't do that. This is, there is very so much here where he's saying there is coming today where judgment is going to take place, and true discipleship is what's at stake. True discipleship is what's at stake. And so he ends with this kind of, you know, this is not the Jesus of the warm and fuzzy precious moments in the, in the front of life way. This is the Lion of Judah we're hearing. And notice that the people respond at the very end going, whoo, nobody else teaches just like this. So we're going to jump into that. But let's, let's first look at the text in verses 13 and 14. And, and I'll just briefly go over this because we talked about it last week. But verse 13 and 14, just remember, the rest of this hinges on this. He's saying, listen, there's a way that seems right, but it's actually very easy, and a lot of people find it, and it's not the way that leads to life, it's the way that leads to death. And the narrow way, the narrowness, that which might crush you, that which might seem burdensome, but the narrow way is actually the true way, and not a lot of people go that way because it's hard. He says, so false teaching, we're gonna come out of talking about false teaching, and we're gonna get to this whole, the broad way that seems easy, that a lot of people go in the narrow way. So we get to verse 15. If you want to make a quick note to go back and look in your Bible, verse 15 is actually referring, Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament here in a couple very specific places. In Jeremiah six thirteen. And then in Ezekiel chapter 13, so those are easy to kind of remember, both places God calls out the people in the nation of Israel who are false teachers and false prophets. And he says to them, listen, you all are teaching these false things and trapping and enslaving and tricking others into your point of view so that you can take advantage of them. You're wicked. You are absolutely perverse in what you're doing. And so Jesus is drawing an absolute parallel to those, and he's saying false prophets and false teachers? They offer an easy alternative or what seems like an easy alternative to the gospel. And then we would say again and by way of commentary that their teaching kind of sounds okay. It sounds all right. But it deceives those who are not anchored in the truth. And so again, we point all the way back to the house that's built on the rock. It's anchored in the truth, something other than itself. And so those that are not anchored in the truth are easily deceived because it looks like something else. And then he wants to give you this analogy of what it is. He says, listen, you know, this type of bush might look a lot like this type of bush, but one produces fruit and the other one doesn't. You know, and so he says, so we're gonna talk about how you know. And so verses 16, 17, and 18 are actually not a philosophical idea. They're actually an ethical test that you can apply to false teaching or any kind of teaching for that matter. He said there's an ethical test for prophecy and teaching in verse 16, 17, and 18. Jesus is saying, what is professed must be seen in someone's practice. What is professed must be backed up by practice. And so then, this is actually another parallel going back to Isaiah 5 1-7. 1-7. through seven. In Isaiah 5, 1-7, God begins and he starts this even before Isaiah's call and he starts talking about this unruly nation of Israel. But he says, listen, I, you're like a vineyard and I spent all kind of time tending you. I put a wine press in the middle. I put a watchtower so that people wouldn't come in. All of those things I did. And yet, even with all the care, you who are supposed to produce good fruit produce sour and awful grapes. And he says, because of this, I'm going to punish you. You're going to have my wrath. And so this is, an, this is totally a tie back to this, because we going to remember that Jesus doesn't say, come as you are and be as you are always. He says, come as you are and I will change you. That is the whole conversation he has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, do what you want. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so, yeah, God is absolutely the one that's in the process of turning thistle bushes and thorn bushes into cherry trees. God is absolutely the one that turns brambles into peach trees. That's what the gospel does. But false teachers are, you don't need to be radically changed. You can just—you don't need to surrender. Just keep doing your thing. There's an easier way. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's, that's the ethical test I'm trying to tell you about. Whatever fruit you produce comes out of what has happened in you. And if God has radically transformed you, guess what? There's going to be a radical transformation in the fruit that you produce in your life. And so at the root of all teaching, we would get to in verse 18, the root of all false teaching, the root of all false teaching is that the gospel isn't enough. That's the root of all false teaching. Now, again, I don't want to preach to people that aren't here this morning so I'm assuming that there are no Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons in the, in the audience. Those are the easy places we can go and we can jump on them with false teaching, but there's so much other false teaching that finds its way with little fingers into our lives that we do need to analyze. So when you get to verses 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20 talk about this final judgment that's coming and, and, and he alludes to it here, but he says, you know, a final judgment is coming in verses 19 and 20, he would say, a mere profession of the lips, a mere profession of the lips is not enough. John the Baptist said the same thing in Matthew 3.10. And he called out the religious leaders that were coming down to be baptized. And he says, listen, listen, come on now. Don't just be up there talking with your lips, but then don't do it with your lives. Don't you, 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 you people, you can't just do this and not have real repentance. You can't, if you say this, you have to profess it and then practice it. And so Jesus is saying, your actions are gonna show me whether your faith is real or not. Anyone can profess things, but do your actions back them up? Let me get to verse 21, and verse 21 is actually a continuation, but now he's being more, more explicit. And this is the tough stuff. These are the things that actually, I had some conversations with people this week, they are like, that, I've heard some people just basically come and beat me over the head with this passage, and I left church going, I thought I was saved, but now I'm not really sure. <laughs> so hang on. So verse 21 is, an, is a continuation, but now he's more explicit. And so what he's saying is, he says, listen, You may know the vocabulary. You may be able to call me Lord, Lord. By the way, Christians, we pray in our own language. And then what I mean is it's an American Southern language. You know, have you ever noticed that like when you and I have a conversation, I say, hey, listen, I'm gonna go to the store because I need to buy this. But when you pray that out, it's just Jesus, I'm just gonna go to the store and if you would just protect me while I'm there, it would just be great because I just need, you know. We know the vocabulary. We pray for hedges of protection. What are they made out of? I don't know, but anyway, And Jesus is like, listen, you know the vocabulary. You know the 23rd Psalm. You know the vocabulary. You even know the religious practice. You know when to stand up. You know when to sit down. You know when to pass the plate. You know all those things. You might even have some good deeds that you've done. You might even be kind of of occasionally a moral person. But your deeds betray who you are because you have never surrendered to me. In verse 22, we get to what C.S. Lewis calls the narrowing. And C.S. Lewis in the book, That Hideous Strength, says all of history is coming to a narrow point, which basically is a judgment day. And Jesus actually calls us out and he says there's going to be a day of judgment, a narrowing. And he says, listen, there is no religious act that you can do that is going to be a substitute for fully surrendering to me. There's no religious act. And you go, well, gosh, what does that look like? And I'm going to give you an example of what that looks like. It looks like Judas. Judas hung out with Jesus for three years. From what we know, cast demons out with all the other disciples, heard the Son of God teaching, performed miracles, did good deeds, but never had surrendered to him. And actually, we know that Jesus—I mean, Judas is the one that seeks out the religious leaders and says, what will it take for me to give Jesus over to you? And then he agrees on some pieces of silver. What does that look like? It looks like Judas. There is no substitute for true discipleship, no religious act that you can do, no amount of vocabulary that you can do. But then in verse 23, verse 23 is the thing that should just jump down your throat. Notice in verse 23 that Jesus doesn't say, and one day God the Father will judge. What does he say? And one day I will judge. You see how earth-shattering that is for those people that have been used to just people, oh, so-and-so said this, and -and so-and-so said this. Jesus says, no, no, no. I will judge you. And if you've ever heard someone say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, I wanna go. And this is just a smaller example of when Jesus did. He said, I will judge. I am identifying myself as the judge. And listen, I'm gonna proclaim to you that the criteria that you failed and the reason I'm not letting you in is not because you didn't know the vocabulary, not because you didn't know some religious practices, not because you didn't do some good deeds, but because you had no relationship with me. Look at what it says. Depart from me, I Knew you not? And you know what that looks like? That looks like me coming to the altar with Danielle saying, I do, I profess it, and then I go out immediately and begin sleeping with other women. I go out immediately and begin spending her money. I go out immediately and begin slandering her. I go out immediately and do everything counter to what I professed. And you know what you would say? I did not have a true what? Commitment to her. It was a commitment by profession only, but no practice. And that's what he's talking about. So in verses 24 through 27, he actually then gives you, he says, I'm gonna give you an illustration now. I want you to see this. I want you to see it in a different way. And so this parable he uses, it's gonna illustrate the relationship between obedience and grace, obedience and grace. Both of the people build a house. It looks the same from the outside, but one of them anchors it on something other than what they have done. They anchor it on the rock. And the other person anchors it only on what they've done. And so when the time of testing comes, when the day of judgment comes, those who are on the rock will be saved not because of their works, but because of something else that was the thing that held them, something else. And so part of this is, again, we see this text. The person that built the house is not going, hey, yeah, look at this rock that I maintained that saved me. Look at this rock that I have been maintaining and I've, I've been... This rock, I mean, if I hadn't been here, this rock probably wouldn't have saved me. No, there's grace there. And so because there's grace given, there is obedience in the way that we live. And then we get to verse 28 through 29. 28 through 29 are amazing because the people are just blown away. Because they're used to the religious leaders and some of the people all the time, they would just do nothing but quote other people. And they would say, well, Hillel said this and Gamaliel said this and the rabbi so-and-so said this and we have disputed this in the Talmud because so-and-so said this. Jesus didn't say that. So you can imagine the judge, the creator, the sustainer and the redeemer all show up and they're the same person. How do you think he would talk? With authority, right? I'm not only telling you the judgment's coming, I will be the judge and I will be the one that saves you from judgment or the one that judges you. And so you can just imagine, they're like, wow, the creator of all the universe and the judge showed up, maybe he might have a little authority. So let's take a little bit of time and talk about false teaching. You know what? Um, I don't necessarily feel like it's it's we as the church's job to be the police, to go around and just actively like knock on everyone's door and be like, listen, listen I'm going to you know interview you, see if... You found out some false teaching, and then I'm going to just crucify you on that and tell you how wrong you are. I do think, however, this is a place where we look into our own lives, we look into our hearts, we look in the mirror, and we look at ourselves and go, what false teaching have I gravitated towards? Because I know none of y'all are like, I'm pretty sure that when I leave this place, I'm going to go become a Mormon. Just sounds good. I don't like caffeine anyway. Or some of y'all are like, hey, listen, now when I leave this place, I'm going to go become a Jehovah's Witness, because I'm pretty sure I'm one of the 144,000. Now, I don't think y'all are doing that. That's not the kind of false teaching that I'm necessarily worried about, but there are all kinds of false teaching that come out in false prophecies. And I want you to know why you believe what you believe so that you can have a good conversation with someone that might be in it, but also that you can be, guard, be on your guard against it. And so, first concept is this. False teaching arises when you think the gospel isn't enough. But it finds a foothold in your life when you realize that you can use false teaching To protect an idol. False teaching arises when you think the gospel is not enough, but it will find a foothold in your life when you realize that you can use false teaching to back up protecting an idol or a favorite sin in your life. If a false teaching will protect that, you will nurture that false teaching, and it will find find an absolute foothold in your life. And so when you come and we look at this text, and we look at verses 15 through 20, Verses 15 through 20, I want you to realize there's a phrase. Verses 15 through 20, I would talk about this phrase of tickling your ears. Have you ever had something that tickled your ear? Like, you know what, I mean, like what will happen is like you're sitting at a table with a lot of people and that was us last night and someone around the table mentioned something about tar heels and I immediately was like, and there's all this talk around but I was like, tickle my ear. What was that? That's what tickling your ear looks like. It's like, it's being in a crowd of people and you hear somebody say your name. You don't know them but you go. Or you hear someone say, Dairy Queen Blizzard, and you go. That's, that's what it is in my family. False teaching will first tickle the ears of people that are impatient for harvest. False teaching will tickle the ears of people that are in, in, impatient for harvest. Because when we look at verse 14, he, he begins to describe to you, he just goes off on this tangent, and he starts talking about fruit. He starts talking about fruit. Anyone that's ever planted fruit it is a, or a vegetable, it's a lesson in what? Patience, right? I mean, like, I'm used to, like, walking out in water, and I'm like, all right, let's go. and wanna just see you go, and then just, you know, apples start going, I mean, it's a lesson in patience. It's a lesson in patience. Fruit just doesn't automatically happen. So part of it is that false teaching will tickle the ears of people that are impatient for the harvest, because if you are not willing to wait to see the fruit of a teaching that might be a little bit sketchy, you're gonna get tricked. Guess what? False teaching, if you're in the time of not fruit producing, a, a, a bush looks like a bush. But if you were to wait around, even if you didn't know anything about horticulture or agriculture, if you waited around just long enough, all of a sudden you'd realize, oh, look, there are little small fruit-looking things on this one, and this one's just getting thorns. One of the biggest ways I think that younger Christians especially get sucked into false teaching is because they want a shortcut all of the other things. They're like, how can I just go ahead and get to being a successful Christian? What can I do? What can I do to have a successful, wonderful Christian life right now, apart from obeying, I'm really good. Can I have the Chia Pet version of that? But guys, there is a shortcut to holiness. There's no shortcut to all of a sudden, like, do this three-step plan, and the next thing you know, you're gonna be, like, the greatest, whatever. And you know what? The example of this, and if I would give you the concrete example, would be the prayer of Jabez. The prayer of Jabez, I have no clue how so many people got sucked into that years ago, but essentially it was, listen, all that praying and all that studying the Bible and all that going to church and all that worship, I'm watering it down some, all that's great, but if you would just pray this simple prayer every day, God would be on the hook to give you this, 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 and this. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Husbands and wives, we pray for things like that, right? We we search our vocabularies. If I call her honey, She will do this. There's no substitute for that. There's no substitute for love. There's no shortcut for it. So be aware that here, this idol we're talking about is the idol of ease. The idol of ease. What's easier, to simply profess it and name it, or to actually obey and do it? So be on your guard for the idol of ease. The second one comes from verses 26 through 27. So verses 26 through 27 But anyone who hears my teaching and ignores it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on the sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will fall with a mighty crash. So the second thing is false teaching will tickle the ears of those who believe their works are more important than Christ's work. And they actually expect that what they build can stand up to the judgment They believe that what they built in their life can stand up to the day of judgment versus what Christ has done for them on Calvary. And so here the idol is morality. Here the idol is morality. And you're like, morality can be an idol? Yes, morality can be absolutely an idol. Because in this situation is actually, they believe that salvation is gospel plus works equals salvation. Which we know that the salvation is gospel plus nothing. Grace plus nothing equals salvation. But why would morality then be an idol? Morality is an idol for the same reason, not that morality is a bad thing. The best idols tend to be good things. The best idols tend to be good things. Money, nowhere in the Bible does it say money is evil. It says money is the root of all evil. Nowhere in the Bible does it say sex is evil. God created sex. Nowhere in the Bible does it say your children are evil or your job is evil or any of those things. And in the same way, Morality, certainly not evil. But if you use morality as a way to elevate yourself above other people, to put yourself in the position of God, remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? If you use morality as a way to then have God on the hook, you're getting leverage on God. God, look at what all these things I've done. You better do this for me. And then all of a sudden, morality becomes your idol and you're living in a way where you're getting leverage, you think, leverage on God so that then he will have to do whatever for you. So there the idol is morality. I'm trusting in more of what I've done than trusting in what Jesus Christ has done. Verse 15, verse 15, I'll read it again. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really wolves that will tear you apart. What does a wolf look like? You know what? I mean, like, for the most part, wolves look like a lot of your guys' dogs. Every time I see some of y'all, maybe the Burnhams have a wolf living with them, basically, he's a German shepherd. Every time I'm like, they got a wolf. Oh, it's a German shepherd, okay. You know, what, we, we don't think about wolves, and we're not living in the Yukon or anything like that, but this viciousness. But what does that look like when it comes to false teaching? And, and, and it looks like this. False teachers will tickle your ears because they will try to get you a, to agree with their own personal idol and make it your own idol because they believe that if they can get a majority, that that will equal legitimacy. Case in point. The entire prosperity gospel, by the way, that's the idea that God has called Christians so that they would be wealthy and healthy all the time. That's the prosperity gospel. Do you know what that is? That's one person who had the idol of greed in their life. And they sought to create a teaching and a false teaching around it so that what? Other people would believe it as well. And then the more people that believe it, well, it's got to be legitimate you know why I know this? People are Duke fans. <laughs> well, if you're a Duke fan, well, I should be a Duke fan too. Why? I don't know. Do you know any way that went there? No. But I don't like that other lighter color blue. I like the dark color. Okay, good. You know, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But you see, you see sometimes you're like, how do people when They get people to go along with them on this teaching? Well, if, you, if I can get you to embrace my idol, I feel better about it. Maybe I'm onto something here. Maybe the gospel isn't enough. Maybe we need the gospel and. And so that, that takes its way to going and looking at, at these cults of false teachings. Well, if you like sex, then maybe having 45 wives is not a bad thing. And if I can get you to agree with me and participate, then we'll all be in it together. And the more people we have, the more legitimate it is. What did he say? The road is broad and many people find it, but it is the highway to hell. The idol there is sin. The idol is sin. We want to reclassify something that God has called sin, not sin. And this is one of the most prevalent things in our society today. Whether it is greed, whether it is about human sexuality, if I can teach you falsely because I have an idol that I want to protect and get you to agree with me, then we can become more of a majority than a minority, and then those other people will have to listen to us. You don't believe me? Look at our denomination. And then finally, actually, um, I'll give you a scripture that kind of just shows you how Jesus Jesus feels about that. In Mark nine forty two, he says, "Woe to those that would cause others to sin! It would be better for them to be having a millstone tied around their neck and tossed in the river." That's what he has to say to those false teachers. And then verse twenty one. Verse 21, not all godly people, not excuse me, not all people who sound religious are really godly. They may refer to me as Lord, but they still won't enter the kingdom of heaven. The decisive issue is whether they obey my Father in heaven. And I say this too false teachers will tickle the ears of those who would trust the truth, but simply also would twist it to accommodate their sin. This is a little bit different from the other one. There are people, excuse me, I I misquoted. False teachers will tickle the ears of those who would like to twist the truth to accommodate their sin. And here is the idol called license. And you know what, I just want to be honest with you. This is the false teaching that wants to pervade its way into my heart and the thing that I feel like I have been called to do battle with in my own life more than anything else. Because the idol is license. And here's how the false teaching goes. I want to sin I know that I shouldn't sin, but I also know that God has grace. So I say this false teaching to myself and other people have purported it too and we all repeat it together and the false teaching goes like this. It's okay, Jesus will forgive me. Do you realize that statement is half right? What's the half right part? Jesus will forgive me. What's the wrong part? It's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay, Jesus will forgive me. But if I repeat that to myself enough, the idol of license, I have Jesus, so I have a license to go do whatever I wanna do. That's not the gospel. That's the gospel and. That's the gospel and. That's the gospel and Paul. And the gospel and Paul doesn't get you anywhere. Just the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there is obvious false teaching out there. Like I said, I'm not worried about you guys falling into something with David Koresh this afternoon. But where's false teaching that tickles our ears and what happens with it? Finally, this is the little bit, just a little bit of a nuanced twist on what I just said. Those who say, Lord, Lord, but cannot enter the kingdom, and that's coming out of verse 21 and 22. Those who say, Lord, Lord, but cannot enter are those who have said, the gospel and, or the gospel but. So I'm going to explain. In verse 22, what does he say? Lord, Lord. And so, the Lord, Lord, it indicates people who know the talk, they know the practices, and they've done the things, but in their heart, they never believed that Jesus was enough, or they believed that he was actually too much, and they needed to kind of take something off of that. So, they either believed Jesus wasn't enough, or they believed Jesus is just too much. I can go there, but I can't go there with you, Jesus. And so, this is related closely to false teaching that we just talked about, but It comes because what our lives produce coming out of false teaching is what Jesus is talking about. He's not just talking about just false teaching, but he's talking about, okay, what kind of life is produced? And that's the whole idea of fruit and the whole idea of saying you can't come in. So we've already spoken about the idol of morality, but here I want to speak to you about the idol or actually the process or the practice of something called legalism. Now, legalism gets a bad rap. Do you know why? Because we hate legalism, so we call everything legalism. So they're kind of like, hey man, I go to that church and they read their Bible. What a bunch of legalists. No, that's called being obedient. I go to that church, but they're always talking about Jesus. What a bunch of legalists. No, they're born again. I go to that Bible and these people tie. I go to that church and these people tie. They're a bunch of legalists. No, we read the Bible. I go to that church and these people say that marriage is between one man and one woman forever. And you know, they're such a bunch of legalists. No, we read the Bible. Legalism is defined when it's something outside of a absolute command, and it's something that people have specified and added to, and they have tied salvation to it. You're not saved unless you tithe 14.5% before taxes. That's legalism. It's exact, and it's how, and it's tied to salvation. And so you can also flee when someone says, hey, did you spend your hour in the Bible today in the book of Leviticus like we all did? Well, I guess you're not saved. That's legalism. That's legalism. That's someone that says, hey, listen, you need the gospel and this. You need the gospel and this. So salvation is tied to a work, and it's a specific work tied to someone else's own specific taste. So those are gospel and people, but there are also then gospel but. Jesus takes that too far. And so again, this is the whole idea of license I just talked about. Jesus died for me, this is the gospel but, Jesus died for me so I can live however I want. I have the gospel, but I love my sin. So here's what what we're gonna have with Jesus. I got the gospel, but I want my sin too. So I'm gonna keep my sin and you're gonna be okay with it, right? Those are the people that have said, hey, the gospel but, And that's why Jesus says, listen, depart from me. You never accepted my authority. You never surrendered to me. Surrender is not like, when we surrender, if if the United States surrendered, that doesn't mean like West Virginia gets to go do what they want to do. They do anyway. But anyway, that means we we surrender. That's a full-on thing. And so to oversimplify this, to oversimplify it, but in a way, just at least you can grasp it is that what he's talking about here is that at the day of judgment, those that are true disciples will stand before the Lord and they will say, Lord, Lord, we did not do one single thing to make ourselves worthy and to put you over the barrier to let us in. All we did was put our faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did once and for all. And that's when he will look to you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant enter into your inheritance that's why the other people are like god look at all the things we did look at look at we knew the talk we knew the practice we did some good things and he will say depart from me you never surrendered to me i never had any authority in your life you professed but never practiced you never surrendered and so i want to just open it up today when we have our time of communion think of it as a time of invitation as well Um, If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you're someone that's given him lip service but never actually practiced it, come. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he's been raised from the dead, then you will be saved. And yeah, obedience comes out of that grace. But if we track it down to its simplest place... The thief on this side of Jesus taunted him and said, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? And you hear the confession, profession, and absolute faith in this person that said, the thief on the other side said this, do you not fear God? Fear God. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know what I said? I can't do it. You're gonna have to do it for me, Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He turns to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. So it is a profession from a submitted, surrendered heart that says, not my way, not how I wanna do it, not you've given me a license to live however I wanna live, but Jesus, you have died for me, so now, because of the grace you've given, I will obey you and live my life for you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took his disciples up into the upper room and he wanted to give them the greatest illustration of his love and he wanted also for them to understand and see the visual of what was happening so he took the cup and he said, listen, this cup represents the blood, not the blood of bulls or not the blood of sheep or goats, but my blood. That's going to be the blood that's poured out for you, and that's going to be the new covenant, not based on your obedience, but based on my obedience. Then he took the bread and he said, this is bread represents my body, broken for you. Every time you get together, eat it and remember me. So today, by the way, this is gluten-free, <laughs> the stuff that, looks like, uh, stuff that looks like, I remember back in the day when gluten wasn't evil. Um. It looks like little crackers. Come, take bread, a chunk of it. Take the cup, go back to your seat, spend time with the Lord and reflect on his goodness, not your goodness, his goodness and reflect on the fact that he has saved you. Not because we did anything to deserve to be saved but just because he's good and his love endures forever. So let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you so much You've given us the greatest example of your love and your grace. And so, Lord, this morning, we've done a lot of things that we feel like are great, but nothing compares to what you've done. So let us base our life on that completely, not on our works, but on your work. Work on our hearts, Lord Jesus, and remind us how good you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.